Stalk Talks podcast brings you intelligent discussion of topical issues inspired by the international city of peace and justice. I think we all know what we need to do. Problems, they come like a costume. They fit you. Remove our inner critic and open our inner, you know, curiosity. You know, nothing speaks louder than money. Walk in, slam your fist on the table, so... (laughs) Yeah. Together, <laughs> something has to change. Welcome back to another episode of Stalk Talks. I'm Tom, and I'm Zoe. And today we tackle the highly complex topic of artificial intelligence, or AI, as it is now commonly known. AI is an increasing part of our everyday lives as algorithms are used to automate more and more of the processes that keep our world running smoothly. Now, although initially very attractive, this trend to automate ever more complex processes has resulted in some not-so-attractive outcomes. Our own biases and those of the societies in which we live found their way into these algorithms, entrenching and amplifying prejudice and stereotypes, rather than providing the kind of neutral, objective decision-making that we typically associate with non-humans. And it raises the question on what to do in order to tackle this and other fascinating questions. We are thrilled to welcome two guests on our show today, both experts in AI in different ways. We'd like to welcome Oya Kudina, Assistant Professor at the University of Delft, and Oya specializes in the ethical implications of AI. Welcome, Oya. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. We'd also like to welcome Bobby Bahoff, AI entrepreneur and co-founder of a number of AI-centered initiatives like space mining technologies and mothership missions. Welcome, Bobby. Thank you for having me. Now, we look forward to a real debate here today on Stalk Talk, so perhaps we can get started right away with an apparently simple question, and I'll open that to both of you, but perhaps, Bobby, you'd like to start. The question is, how exactly do algorithms work? And if we think of them as uh, recipes for processing information, how can we decide what should or could be reduced to an algorithm? Well... Almost everything, I would say, as long as we understand it well enough. The thing is that we are using these kind of processes in our everyday lives all the time. We just don't realize them. So even even picking up your keys and unlocking your car can be broken down into algorithmic steps, let's say. When it comes to AI, it's basically statistics under the hood and a statistical analysis for most of it. A lot of people think it's some kind of magic. It really isn't. And it's really just some mathematical and statistical operations on a lot of data that allows us to find patterns and understand it better. Thanks, Bobby. I'm going to come back to you on the, on the first bit of what you were saying about the processes. But um, first, Alia, what are your thoughts on this one? So I would take a a bit of a different approach at looking at AI, not so much maybe technical, maybe specifically saying the technical definition of AI about the, you know, statistical operations in between and data collection and data processing is one part of the story. I look at AI as a socio-technical system. And in general, quite a lot of technologies around us are just have systematic properties, but especially AI, it always has the social component of individual and collective agents that run it, that help to design it, but also use it. And they have an impact on how the system is being implemented and what effects it has. Then, of course, there's the technical component. 
And we also, especially with artificial intelligence, have some kind of new level of technical norms and technical agents that are also running tasks on their own or under certain command, learn to implement new tasks in a different way. And of course, the last component, but not least, the world, <laughs> that is basically the governance setting, the institutional setting. It's a specific tradition, specific culture, norms, expectations where a system is operating. And so we may be talking about the same technology, but when it's implemented in a different context, it may have completely different effects and uh, it may be embedded in very different, unique ways. And so that's why I think when we're talking about AI, it's important not to talk just about the technical components as isolated, you know, as something that is just in itself, but something that is always at the intersection of the humans and the world. And because of that, has quite systematic nature and systematic effects. Yeah, I, I think we'll, and we'll definitely pick up on that as well a bit later. But then before we move on to our next question, so Bobby, you mentioned and you said you think almost all processes could, in theory, be reduced in some way to an algorithm. And you mentioned something simple like uh, unlocking our car. But that then brings us on to the question, are there some processes that perhaps shouldn't be reduced to an algorithm, even if one could? That's a big ethical question. Unfortunately, uh, there's no uh, right answer to this. There's uh, a lot of different subjective opinions on uh, what we should apply AI on and what we shouldn't. As uh, Ole also said, I think it really falls down to who is using it. So you can have very different outcomes also based on the data that you use. AI is a tool that helps us improve how we live our lives and automate some processes in our lives or in our businesses. If everything is ideal in an ideal situation, automating those should lead to the same results. The problem is that we very often we don't understand a lot of the things that when we manually perform a certain task, a lot of the things that we put into it. And uh, very often from the socioeconomic point of view, we don't even understand the biases and the subjective opinion or influence that we have over the process when we do it manually. Most of the time, we don't realize that there is an influence because if, if there's a human doing it, there will be an influence because there will almost always be a subjective understanding of the information. And even for something very trivial, everyone has their own approach and their own, well, yeah, their own way, way of doing it. Yeah. So I, I think that's exactly what I want to latch on to, because I also want to further ground the discussion a little bit for a lot of the, the listeners. Basically, to give an example, in the media, there's currently a lot of discussion going on about the dangers and the bias in algorithm. To give an example of what you mentioned, Bobby, as well, in a perfect world, we would have perfect data. But in the data that we have right now, because it's driven by humans, there are inherently biases. An example is the, the racial bias in the predictive policing tools, which are used widely in the US, but also in other countries, and the gender bias algorithms that designed to speed up the recruitment process, which leaves us to the question of how could we avoid these biases in a situation where all of the data is being provided by, well, let's say imperfect humans. Oh yeah, maybe it's good to start with you in that in this sense. Yeah, Tom, but I think I'm going to be an uneasy respondent here because I'd like to redirect the question and come back. I think the nature of the question is grounded in one of the ways how Bobby framed AI, namely as a tool. And I think a lot of our discussions about the impact of AI in society also have to do with that sort of objective, let's say more instrumentalist kind of version of what AI does. And while I do agree, of course, it is there for a reason to help, you know, make some 
processes in society better, right? We want to automate because we want to make it better, to make it more efficient and easier. I think it's also important to not miss out on the idea that AI also does something else than it, it was designed originally to do. And that something else is usually quite soft impact, not like maybe direct, but it also helps to shift our priorities suddenly in society. It almost helps to shape the society back, even though it was originally designed by humans. So it's it's almost a bit counterintuitive. And we would call this position, at least I would look at it as then not just an instrumentalist or like tool-based perspective, but a more interactionist way to look at what the nature of AI is. And so the question of biases and like racial prejudice and stuff, it's a good example to show that while the algorithm is running to do its job, along the way, it's also picking up the, the use patterns that have already been in society. It learns to embed something for which it was not designed beyond what was input in it. And together, it creates these kind of effects that were not intended simply, that, that you know, the developers of AI usually are not very bad people who do not intend bad impacts on society. But somehow, quite often, when high stakes things like integration control or policing and facial recognition things are considered, we do come across these very negative connotations on how AI is used and what kind of outcomes it has. So what's what's the problem there? And I think that looking at AI from this more interactionist perspective, again, that comes back to the point of it being a system rather than just a technological component. It will help us to enlarge our view at what is at stake and look at AI broader that would take us back not just to the matter of development, but how it's being developed, how the problems for specific algorithms are being set up for which context the considerations are to be deployed, which you know cultural settings are being taken into account and whatnot. And of course, that brings us to the questions of inclusion, diversity, and uh, other usual suspects. In the yeah, I recently uh, read an article that spoke about how AI, well, data sets that AI draws on, it's a case of using the past to shape the future. Algorithms are trained on past history, past data sets. That's what human beings have been doing forever. We use inductive reasoning to make yeah. predictions about the future. So is it is it even possible to move away from something that is so fundamental? Absolutely, Sally. And that's exactly, I think, when bias already, you know, <laughs> featured here, I think, in this conversation super briefly, what you're talking about is very much related to it. Just like humans, AI are also trained. We are also, as humans, we're born into a certain tradition that we can't escape. Mm -hmm. Then when we learn, we educate, collect experience, and then we gradually learn to reflect on it, cut out some pieces that we think are less desirable, and, you know, surround ourselves with information that we think do. Algorithms, of course, don't have agency in the way people do, but they act also in this revisionary manner, sort of iterative styles. And I think what's important to understand here is that bias is much more complex than the sort of, I would say, technical definition that we give it to. So the way I understand it, at least from my technical colleagues, is that Bias is immediately some kind of deficiency. It's it's an imbalance that we have to fix because it's the root, you know, cause of the problem of the bad effects of AI in society. And basically, if we look at it from this instrumental sort of tool perspective, the reasoning goes that, well, when we diversify the data, when we give more data, much, much more data, then we approve the results of the algorithm and the biases can be eradicated. Of course, I'm simplifying here, but very often this is the logic uh, that I'm hearing. And where I think ethics and philosophy can help make it not so easy and sort of, I guess, problematize it further is to give a different idea on the nature of bias. And it's related to what you were saying about how we think, build on history and improve predictions. So bias in philosophy is something that's just a part of human condition, what it means to be, because it helps us always see something as something. We see a new phenomenon. We might not know what it is. 
Well, we already have an idea about its shape, color, embedding that might give us an idea of what that could be. So it's almost like a pre-judgment. It's something mm-hmm. that helps to wire our decisions before we're even aware you know, of what it can be. And from that perspective, we cannot avoid bias, just like algorithms mm-hmm. cannot avoid bias. But just because we can't avoid it, you know, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be aware about it, that we shouldn't make ourselves aware about it, that we shouldn't have the responsibility to mitigate it. Because just like bias can have a positive effect, basically it can be a shortcut, you know, to construct some kind of meaning, to make sense of new information, right? to act quickly. Sometimes I heard someone refer to it as basically like muscle memory. This muscle memory can be bad as well, right? Because it can conjure an illusion before we even sort of start inquiring what this new phenomenon means. And these quick decisions, they can be flawed because they will act on these past dependencies. And depending on what kind of data was input, they may not be quite fair or quite balanced decision. They can perpetuate injustices and reinforce some errors in the judgment. So long story short, it's very important to sort of look at the different stages where, you know, we can intervene in developing Mm -hmm. AI technologies to understand how can we diversify those impact? What are the points where we can make ourselves aware how bias can seep in and what can we do about it? And luckily there are those strategies and there are those points. So it's not all that bad, but it does give us more responsibility. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying is that it's all of our responsibility and it has to happen all all the way along. There's not no quick fix, like, as you say, just make the data sets bigger and it will all be fine. Yeah, I, I think that leads very nicely into the next question that we have from Bobby, because uh, Bobby started off saying everything can be automated, everything can be turned into an algorithm. And then we, we heard a rebuttal from Oya, well, said, well, we need to put some critical viewpoints. And one of the topics that we actually speak about, Oya mentioned it nicely, she said, okay, people often give the argument that it's about size, that it's about the amount of data. So one of the topics that we want to talk about is actually big data and the argument that big data can help reduce bias and that the ownership of data is very pivotal in well the, the success of an algorithm. So Bobby, a question to you is to why is, is the data ownership so pivotal to the, the question of ethical AI development? That's a very good question and it also indeed it relates to what Ola said because one of the very mild implementation that we now nowadays have of artificial intelligence in society compared to what it could be um, is that it helps us understand better our own way of thinking and it points out that flows within our processes, within our way of perceiving the world. And these biases that uh, Ola mentioned, it's very interesting when a huge corporation for example, is very proud that they're very fair and uh, they're all about equality. And suddenly when you analyze all their data for the past 10 years, for example, it turns out that that's not really true. And people are genuinely shocked. And it's really because we do have biases and there's a lot of things that happen subconsciously and we don't really realize that we look at a certain thing in a certain way. So analyzing this, not just for business purposes. It helps us understand also how our psychology works. And then when it comes to data ownership, when you collect huge amounts of data, uh, you can do a lot of things with it. So who can do that is uh, crucial. And it's impossible to stop generating data because every single step that you do is data. Every breath that you take could be translated into data. So your location, your timestamp, you know, everything can be translated into a data set. 
whoever has that can gather some some very interesting insight. And there's been some con- controversies. There's the uh, very popular example of Target that uh, happened, I think, uh, almost 10 years ago now. The supermarket chain um, Target in the United States, who knew that uh, a certain girl was pregnant before even she knew just because she changed her um, <laughs> shopping behavior. Scary. Yeah, but that, that's the thing. Like, we don't realize that something like for example being pregnant can change a woman's behavior and even in society when you interact with with each other there's a lot of things that our brain picks up but the consciousness mm-hmm. doesn't and as Ola said it's almost as muscle memory indeed it helps us navigate the world navigate society and be part of it and then when you gather these huge amounts of data and you try to train an algorithm for a specific outcome, even if you have a certain result that you're aiming for, you might on the way pick up other things that you didn't realize are there. Well, maybe this leads on to the next question. This is why isn't it a case that our data should be perhaps less available because, as you say, that is something that is very personal in, in many ways to each individual And if indeed these algorithms have the power to pick up not only on the most obvious bits of data, but on everything that seems to surround it, is that ethical then? Well, it depends what you apply it for and what are the limitations that you put on that. But when my Spotify suggests music to me, I don't mind that the algorithm is analyzing my music preferences and uh, what I like to listen to. And very often it has some very good uh, suggestions that I actually uh, surprisingly like a lot. Same goes with my YouTube channel. And uh, I'm actually working towards training the algorithm and only picking up things that I'm interested in through uh, through a specific account. So the algorithm would understand what type of interests I have and Right now, it has great suggestions for me anytime I open my YouTube dashboard. So these are just examples of some very good outcomes that can come from an algorithm analyzing someone's behavior. Of course, there's a lot of uh, risk involved in that, but it's all about how you manage the data and whether we understand implications of using these systems and what happens once we give this data to the system. If we understand it well enough and if it's processed in a right way i don't see a problem um well maybe maybe a good question to you bobby is do you think that the people who are in current ownership or who have all this data are processing it in a proper and correct way because for example the example you give with youtube and saying well it recommends me videos there there have simultaneously been a lot of reports and a lot of problems surrounding the youtube algorithm with conspiracy theories because it generates the most clicks it doesn't take in consideration other factors it has other than the simple end goal of generating lots of engagement and retention and it found the most effective way to do that is by spreading things that aren't true uh yeah that's a that's a big problem and it was uh There was a a lot of uh, discussion around Facebook and Twitter. And even in this past one year, the beginning of Corona, they had to tweak a bit the way information is uh, exchanged on the platforms, exactly because very often there will be false information or fake news that would circle around and people would share. 
So they introduced the more sophisticated way of checking the source and verifying, or at least flagging it, that it might not be true. But it really falls down to, again, understanding our own processes for that. If we as as, uh, users are more likely to click on a conspiracy theory, we need to be aware of that. And unfortunately, we are not, or most people are not. So uh, again, my point of view is, as Ola put it, more instrumental, where AI is just a tool that maybe uh, enhances certain abilities and uh, points out that flows within the process rather than creating the flows itself. Maybe we could just bring Oli in here. Thanks, thanks, Bobby. So it was a very interesting conversation. And I think your original question was about how ethical it is with all the data collection practices. But I'd like to remind that we have the general data protection regulation that sets strict process and procedure and how the data, first of all, the definition of data and the personal data. Second of all, the procedures for companies and for the users of how to, you know, give an informed consent about how your data is collected, the scope of data collection, the purposes of it. And so when the when people want to sign up to certain service, say YouTube, right, or, or Spotify, like Bobby was mentioning, company presents them with terms of use. Now, it's, of course, a different question that hardly anyone, myself included, ever reads the million long page legalistic term terms of use yeah. that defines very clearly what's in there, what kind of purposes, what kind of limitations there are, because it's unreadable. It's unrelatable. It's made unrelatable to people. But legally, it protects the company, you know, against the GDPR and other potential regulations. So the question of data for me is uh, like inside, outside, like the double, it's it's a two-way street, the data question for me. On the one hand, it's about the companies informing the users, not just in legalistic ways, but having this more social and corporate responsibility to inform people for what purpose they're collecting their data. Some giving some examples for what that can be used, stipulating the scope until when they can use that data mm-hmm. and that people always have a right to say no and opt out of it, that we also have a right. And that also how their data is like, so all, all those legalistic terms, but put in human terms, let's, let's put it this way. And not just at the point of one time take off, agree, and never again hear about yeah. it throughout the process of using the service, but have some kind of dynamic continual consent because company grows their business interests grow. So probably the way they're going to be using the data will also grow. And usually it's being done through updates and through very seamless tick to continue using the service again, where it's not meaningfully communicated to the users what's actually changed, like how then their data is going to be used in new ways that they didn't know about before. Now that's the corporate responsibility. But I'm also a firm believer in the user responsibility. A big gap in media literacy of people on what having the data you know, means, how we are all living data and how... More and more of our digital traces in line can provide meaningful insights. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but hardly, well, I would say not a lot of people are aware of what their data can be used for, how it can be made meaningful. And so when I talk about media literacy, it's also taking proactive user responsibility to ask these questions, to understand what's happening with my data, to know that you have a right to opt out and still continue using parts of the service because it's not a blackmail either or system. Um, what can be done with your data? You know, what are your actions? Who do you turn to when you think it's been violated? So all of these things are out there, but it's very complex. And I feel it's about, this is why I think the two-way street is an interesting metaphor because it has to cross at some point. And this is where ideally I think we're going towards too, but at the moment I see a big gap in it. I agree Olya. Well, as Bobby said, sometimes we can be, we can appreciate the help of an algorithm, but at the same time we want to 
also have the option not to have, it's not an all or nothing, but I think at the moment we are in that all or nothing category, aren't we? And Okay, well, perhaps we can move towards a, a bit of a close, although I know we've only just touched on so many fascinating themes. I, I think of a, a sci-fi book that I read many years ago. It's called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And indeed, this was the, the book on which the Blade Runner film and series was, was based. But it always just makes me think about this very sort of alternative uh, reality that perhaps we are heading towards but Tom, I know you came up with three interesting possible scenarios that perhaps you'd like to share with yeah. Bobby and Olya. Well, we had a, a, a fascinating discussion when we were preparing for the session and, and we had a heated debate as well as what the future might look like and how algorithms might influence our lives. But for this scenario specifically, to make it clear, there are three options and we were very curious to see which one of the three you would pick. And I'll, I'll start with you, Olya. So uh, one is human consciousness and thinking is irreplaceable. Um, number two is humans will work symbiotically with AI technology and algorithms and big data. Or three is uh, algorithms will replace a majority of humans and a few unique experts who sort of have to help guide these algorithms will remain. And I'm, I'm curious which one of the three you deem most likely for the future. So I, I'm not even doubting, to be honest. It's, it's two. It, and I'm a firm believer of human AI collaboration and the symbiotic part of it, it's, it's gradually coming because guess what? I think it's already happening. I think this is not a far off distant future. We mm -hmm. are already coexisting on daily basis with aspects of AI in our lives, right? It's, it's, it's from like my phone camera pre-selecting filters and then uploading everything automatically on Instagram. Or I don't know, uh, like Bobby was saying, my curated playlist that actually helps to shape my mood with which I go on to have my daily activities. It's such a kind of behind the back power, but it's happening. It's a part of my daily life already. But, and I think it does, makes me better. But Olya, doesn't that make you a little concerned that if this trend continues, there'll be less and less you and more and more AI? No, because just like what you were saying earlier, it's always an idiosyncratic process. We continuously update ourselves. We're not a closed loop system. We're always open to change. Our environment is increasingly dynamic and so is our technology. It's not a stable static thing. It's also open to change and we're updating it. And together we're growing sort of, we're growing with each other and uh, you know, we're pushing each other's boundaries. Technologies push our ethical limits and our ethical frameworks are co-evolving with what technology confronts us with. But it doesn't mean anything goes, right? Of course, we're still creative. We're maintaining critical look, we're updating and sometimes it's a choice of not to continue using a certain technology. That choice is also always there and we're also using it to some extent. So I think it's always open, it's developing and uh, it's it's about human AI collaboration, strengthening what it means to be human actually. Thank you, Olya. And, and I'm curious to hear what, what, what Bobby has to add to this and Bobby, over to you. I completely share this uh, opinion and uh, I think Olya uh, put it amazingly. I'm uh, on the extremely positive side of thinking about the future and uh, effect and the effects of technology on everyday life. And uh, most people don't realize that they're already indeed using AI probably on a daily basis, even tr just through their email inbox, because the spam filter, guess what? It's AI generated and powered. So yeah, I, I understand where a lot of fear in society comes from, but it's really from lack of awareness and understanding 
of how the technology works. And if you look at 100 or so years ago, when 80% of the population was farmers, I mean, technology allowed us to automate a lot of things, be more efficient. And now it's, I think, 10% of the population or something is farmers. So have, have we become less human? I think on the contrary, uh, it allows us to spend uh, more time on uh, on a lot of other things. And there will be some jobs that will be replaced indeed. And nothing against those people. I appreciate them a lot. But for example, my pizza doesn't need uh, to be delivered by a person. You know, So there will be such things that actually we don't need a person doing them. The delivery person can do uh, something else, something more interesting even. I think automating a lot of these things will allow us to actually be more human. It will allow us to experience more of life, enjoy and focus more on arts or music, for example, rather than doing dull and repetitive jobs. Well, time has flown. Uh, We're watching the clock a little bit here, but as always, this has been an exceptionally fascinating conversation. Thank you so much to both Olya and Bobby for for joining us today on Stalk Talks and to our audience. If your interest has been piqued by any aspect of our discussion today, uh, you can find more information about Bobby's work on his his website, which is literally bobbybarhoff.com, but also more specifically, um, his www.spaceminingtech initiative, which is a focus on AI um, being applied to um, to space. For Olya, you can obviously contact her or, or see learn more about her work through the University of Delft. But she also has her own website, which is literally her name, Olya Kudina. Dot com, and you can find out a lot more about her her fascinating work there. So thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks. This was really fun. Yeah, I, I feel we may need another episode because I feel there's so much more discussion and things we can still talk about. But obviously, that is something Absolutely. for a later date. I think in the meantime, uh, you can stay tuned for another episode on a different topic uh, from the Stalk Talks podcast next week. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook or Anchor. And remember that you can always watch the full unedited interview on our YouTube channel called Stalk Talks. In addition to that, be sure to check out the giveaway that we've got going on from one of our previous interviews with Haagse Swam. We want to thank you so much for tuning in each week and we hope to see you back in the next.